As we prepare to hear scripture read and proclaimed, let us pray. Holy and gracious God, we thank you for the gift of your holy word, for the ways that it comforts us and nourishes us and challenges us to be your faithful people. May it do all of these things this day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, the very final verses of this gospel, chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. This is Matthew's post-resurrection story of when Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, met with the disciples. Hear now God's word to you. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Earlier this week, Wilson Kennedy, a member of our staff, shared with some of us an article titled, The Reason Zoom Calls Drain Your Energy. Just from the title, I couldn't wait to read it. I know many of you, like me, are on a lot of Zoom calls these days. And while I know we're deeply grateful for this video conference service that lets us meet with people face-to-face when we cannot be together physically in the same space, these meetings, whether they're for work or pleasure, often leave us feeling tired. The article explains that the reason for this exhaustion is our brains are actually having to work harder during these calls than if we were in person because we just don't get the same cues from facial expressions and body language when we're seeing someone on a two-dimensional screen. If there's a moment of silence during one of these calls, we wonder, wait, uh, did I mute myself? Did, did they? Or if a strange expression crosses someone's face, we're not sure if they're reacting to something we said or if their screen just froze at an unfortunate moment. The bottom line is that being with people on these two-dimensional screens instead of in three dimensions in, persons, in person means our brains have to work a lot harder and differently than usual. Hence, Zoom fatigue. During these weeks after Easter, we are hearing some of the gospel stories about encounters the disciples have with Jesus after the resurrection. Having experienced the limitations of two-dimensional communication, it is clearer to me than ever that these encounters were critically important for the disciples. They needed three dimensions, not two They needed to be with the resurrected Jesus in person to see him and hear him and touch him and receive his direction 
as they wrestled with what it was going to mean to share the good news of God's love that he had shared with them. In Matthew's gospel, the women who go to the tomb on that first Easter morning and discover it empty, leave from there, find the disciples, and tell them that Jesus has gone ahead of them to Galilee and they should meet him there. Now, the journey from Galilee or to Galilee from Jerusalem would have taken the disciples at least a couple of days on foot. Can you imagine the questions turning in their minds on that journey? What will Jesus be like? What's going to happen next? What will he say? What will we say? As they climbed the mountain that marked the end of their long journey, we can understand if the disciples are expecting that something big and monumental is going to happen when they finally meet the resurrected Jesus in person, in the flesh, maybe something like the transfiguration that we heard about at the beginning of Lent when Jesus takes two of the three of the disciples up a mountain and then starts glowing like the sun and Moses and Elijah appear with him. Instead, When the disciples meet Jesus at the top of this mountain, nothing big or monumental really happens. They worship him, but there is still some doubt. Is this really Jesus? And what does all of this mean? The next thing that happens in this passage are these words. Jesus came to them. Now that little word came is a translation of a word that literally means to step toward or to draw near. As soon as he sees his disciples, Jesus gets physically closer to them. It's a gesture that communicates presence and support and care and appreciation. When we are with someone and we want them to really hear what we're saying, when we want them to know that we are with them, we lean in. We give them not only our attention, but our physical direction. This is exactly what Jesus does. Before he says a word to the disciples about what comes next, he draws near to them in a gesture of comfort and solidarity. And then after he speaks, He reminds them that he is always with them, maybe not in this physically present way, but in a real, meaningful, solidarity kind of way. In between physically drawing near to them and assuring them of his presence, Jesus speaks. He only says three sentences, one long one bracketed by two short and comforting ones. But it is that long sentence sandwiched between those short and comforting sentences that is huge. It is nothing short of totally overwhelming. This is what he says. Go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. I am sure that at that moment, 
the disciples would have liked nothing more than to rest on the top of that mountain with Jesus, their teacher and their Lord. They've had a long journey. They're finally seeing him again face to face. Surely they have a lot of questions for him about what had happened, and they just want to be in his presence. Instead, right after he draws near to them and announces that God has given him all authority in heaven and on earth, he tells them to get busy, to go, to make disciples, to baptize and teach. And not just to do this with people they know in the places they know, but to go to all the nations, to baptize and teach and make disciples throughout the whole world. It's an enormous task Jesus sets before his disciples, and that includes us. And it can feel like this is an especially hard commandment for us to fulfill in a season like the one we're in. When many of the ways that we have practiced discipleship just aren't available to us. How do we live out Jesus' command when we are under so many restrictions? This week, I heard an interview of the actor Jamie Lee Curtis. As she reflected on this season of staying at home, she shared one aspect of this that has been the most challenging, that has brought me to my knees, is that I don't do the phone very well. I hate the phone. I never even send a text longer than two words. She goes on, I have never, ever, prior to three weeks ago, done FaceTime. But three weeks ago, my daughter taught me and my husband how to work Zoom and be in a video conference. Now I do recovery meetings every day on them. Now I am Miss Technology, but that's not me. This time has demanded that I participate in a way that is unnatural for me, and that has been very challenging. I bet every one of us can relate to that. Now, maybe the phone isn't your issue like it is for Jamie Lee Curtis, but every one of us has had to learn how to do things in this season in ways that take us way out of our comfort zones. Maybe it is learning to use Zoom to participate in a meeting. Maybe it's having to stand six feet away on the other side of a glass door to catch a glimpse of a new grandchild. Or celebrating a birthday by joining a drive-by parade. Or finding ways to do school from a distance, whether as a teacher or a student. Or getting way more involved in your children's education if you're a parent. Grocery shopping for a week at a time so you don't have to go to the store so frequently, or even just making do with what you have at home so you don't have to go out at all, or simply dealing with long stretches of boredom or anxiety while we follow the recommendation to stay home. This season that is pushing us out of our comfort zones and asking us to learn to do things differently is actually critical practice for the work of discipleship. Because from everything we are learning about this virus, we know it's going to be a long time, possibly even a year or more, before things begin to return to something that resembles normal. Which means we are a lot closer to understanding how those first disciples felt 
when they finally meet up with the resurrected Jesus only to have him speak this hard word, commissioning them to go and disciple and baptize and teach the whole world about the love and mercy and compassion and care of God revealed to them by Jesus. Now make no mistake, we can fulfill this great commission right where we are. We can do this right from our homes. In fact, we already are doing it. All those ways we're stretching out of our comfort zone so that we can stay safe and keep others safe while still maintaining connections with the people we love and with the world. This is the work of discipleship to which Jesus calls us. When we overcome our distaste for virtual meetings and get on anyway, when we keep going in spite of the fatigue and boredom, when we find creative ways to love and care for one another and especially to care for those who are experiencing the greatest suffering and the greatest need, those who are sick or hungry or unemployed or risking themselves to work in essential services, When we do any of these things, we are fulfilling Christ's command to live as three-dimensional disciples out in the world. This week, my friend and colleague Andrew Kukla sent a letter to his congregation, the First Presbyterian Church of Boise, Idaho. In a press conference, the governor of Idaho had put churches in the category of businesses that could reopen on May the 1st. Andrew wrote this letter to explain to his church why the session had decided not to reopen that soon. They would wait, he explained, until they had a better understanding of how the virus works and what manner of gathering in groups could be truly safe. In his letter, Andrew drew near to his congregation with these encouraging words, we are capable of connecting and witnessing without gathering in large groups. This is not the worst thing that has ever happened to us. We are learning a lot. We are loving a lot. And we are living together apart a lot. And we can keep doing this. And I trust that we will find we did so for good reason. He goes on, but we also need to remember in our grief and disappointment which is natural, real, and needs to be expressed, not to make more of our loss than what it really is. Church has not, nor ever has been, closed. The building is closed. Our people are physically distant. But the spirit and life of the church are very much at work. And the love of God cannot be separated by hill or valley or quarantine. And no date of reopening or lack of date will change that. So keep living resurrection life. Keep staying at home while at work in the world. Keep giving witness to the good news. That is what we do. Friends, those words that were true for that congregation of First Presbyterian Boise are true for us as well. Whoever we are. Wherever we are, we are the church in the world, not because of our building, 
but because of our three-dimensional bodies and hearts and minds that continue to show resilience and creativity and deep faithfulness and fidelity to our calling to follow a three-dimensional, risen and loving Lord. So go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, teaching them everything that you have learned from our Lord, who has promised to be with us now and forever. Amen.